Hello all and welcome to our new podcast. We'd like to think you're here having a listen because you love our stuff, but you've probably just stumbled across us during lockdown boredom. Whatever brought you here, we're not fussy. We're glad to have you. So grab a cuppa or a beer or whatever you fancy and stick with us. We've got chats coming up about Blenheim Palace and how it's getting ready to let us all back in. What it's going to be like on the buses now that loads of people are going back to work. Plus, you've got to stay tuned to hear from a guy called Tim Claydon, who tells us exactly what it's like to have coronavirus. First, though, I wanted to focus a bit on some of the people that make up the army of volunteers that are helping all over Oxford during the pandemic. Many of them have swapped their typical day job for roles helping some of the most vulnerable people in the city. Like Alice Robinson, she's 26. You'd usually find her in one of the labs at Oxford Uni. And uh, she started helping out before the pandemic, actually, through the Good Gyms initiative, which is basically where a group of runners will stop off en route to support local organisations. Alice told me more about some of the ladies she's been helping while they're self-isolating. As a volunteer before uh, lockdown, I was working with Good Gym, or volunteering with Good Gym, I should say, um, to help support a few people, just basically uh, having a coach, Alison, who I saw on a weekly basis. But since the lockdown's begun, and obviously she's not able to go out and do the things that she'd normally do, like going to yoga and being able to go to the big Tesco to go and get her weekly shop, um, I've kind of increased my contact with her, but by phone call rather than seeing her, just to check in and see how she's doing, um, and uh, to kind of have a nice uh, alternative and a distraction to some of that loneliness she's been facing. We were chatting about our recent music uh, interests, and um, I created sort of a mixtape for her so that she could listen to that around the house and obviously delivered it in a socially distant and a gloved-up manner so that I didn't spread anything to her, seeing as she's vulnerable and isolating. Mm. That's and really then, lovely, uh, though. I, I mean, that must have been maybe a sort of small task, I suppose, for you, but something that meant a lot to her. Yeah, definitely. And um, although I couldn't see her when dropping it off, uh, she was incredibly grateful, ringing me up and saying thank you about 12 times in a um a phone call uh, not long after dropping it off. Um, you can definitely see how grateful she was and how much it meant in such difficult times. And tell me a bit about Jenny as well. Uh, so I met also Jenny through uh, the Good Gym um, and I'd been walking her dog for her after completing a one-off task um, through a uh, mission um, from Good Gym. But now again, uh, similarly to Alison, Jenny's having to isolate because she's vulnerable um, and I can't go in and walk the dog anymore. Um, but it's kind of changed to being able to get her groceries for her. Um, her family are around, but her family are of a similar age to her and therefore isolating themselves. Um, and all of the delivery slots, um, as we've all seen from places that uh, injuries have all gone and been snapped up and aren't reliable. So uh, being that kind of reliable source of uh, being able to get her groceries, getting prescription needs, getting things for the dog, um, and also just being sort of a friendly voice on the phone to check in and see how she's doing seems to have made quite a lot of a difference. I know a lot of people have maybe thought about volunteering as well and maybe not got round to it or not sure what they could really help with. But it sounds like for you, it was it was kind of an obvious thing to do. Uh, yeah, definitely. So it's a hugely rewarding thing. And I'm, as much as it's been helping out, it's also been keeping myself sane as well. Uh, having that person to person contact, even if not in person, but on the telephone and trying to keep things as normal as possible. And it feels really nice and rewarding to be able to help out. Another Oxford Uni researcher who answered the call for volunteers at the Oxford Hub is Ben Foster. He also swapped the lab for shopping and dog walking for his vulnerable neighbours. The Oxford Hub, uh, the Oxford Together, uh, would link me up with a, a local person who has referred themselves or been referred to 
either a friend, a family member or their carer or something. I would link up with them to either do shopping or to pick up a prescription or to send a parcel via the post office because if they were self-isolating or were unable to get out or were just required a bit of extra help at the minute. So they're always very thankful and we both wish each other to stay safe and well. One time one of the elderly neighbours, she wanted to give some sort of donation because she tends to work in cash. She basically threw a fiver at me from a social distance so to donate to Oxford Hub because there's many ways to help out either through donating to Oxford Hub or Oxford together to what they're doing or doing more practical tasks. So oh, yeah, I've been very thankful. And, yeah. Have you been very busy with all of this? When I've been linked up, it's usually been once, maybe twice per week. And there's one where I did a shop once, um, checked in a week or so later, and they managed to get uh, delivery slots with Tesco. So it's more just seeing people over until they can get maybe more permanent tasks and some are more regular. Moving forward, obviously, when things do start to get back to normal, if they do, do you think you'd like to kind of keep up some of this work that you're doing? To an extent, so um, I do some work for Good Gym Oxford and they been doing community-based missions and tasks around Oxford. So that's something I'll keep up anyway. But the additional stuff with Oxford Hub, I think their work with the council and coordinating all these practical tasks and a lot of the phone links um, to make sure if people are isolated or living alone, have a weekly conversation on the phone or something. And those sort of things maybe will happen after the lockdown and crisis is over. For them, you might be the only person they've seen that day or maybe even that week. Uh, how does it feel to kind of be in that situation where you, in some ways, may be a sort of lifeline for them? I try to smile, check if they're okay, if they're fine, someone to talk more, someone to talk less. Yeah, I just try and greet them with a smile and make sure they're okay. Um, mm. Brighten the day a little bit. <laughs> too much, yeah, yeah. Now also doing some amazing work helping people in need right now are some of the staff at Oxford City Council who maybe aren't needed in their usual jobs at the moment. Angela normally works as the council's international links officer, which means she's helping to build connections with Oxford's twin cities. At the moment, though, she's working for the Oxford East Locality Hub. Here she is chatting to Emma from News. I used to be based at the town hall and now I'm uh, based in my shed <laughs> in the garden. So um, uh, so physically it's, it's changed quite a bit. And then the, the actual role um, has been more, I suppose, about emergency, um, I suppose, emergency communications, what other Twin Cities are doing. So, But obviously the role is, um, my role has actually changed because I'm also working with Oxford together and the locality hubs. So now I'm mostly spending my time phoning residents and finding out what their urgent needs are. So it's more of a kind of caseworker role, which I've not done before. So it's kind of learning as you go along. And um, I'm really sort of being someone there um, at the other end of the phone who's able to listen and, and problem solve and find out what it is that people actually need. What have people been saying to you then? What are their needs? Well, they really vary so wildly. I mean, um, I, I suppose a lot of people I'm speaking to are isolating mostly because of health needs or because they've been placed on the vulnerable list. And so they're often worried um, and looking for emergency food. They can't get maybe supermarket deliveries and have young families or some of them are elderly and don't have access to the internet and are just looking for someone at the end of the phone who can offer advice. 
So, um, for instance, I had um, an elderly man the other day who I thought he, he was phoning because he wanted to uh, look for emergency food options. But actually, he was just quite worried and wanting to be prepared in case he had a fall. So he was asking me, you know, what options are there out there? I don't know where to look. I'd need a panic alarm because I don't have any friends and family. And if something happens to me, I really, I really need to get sort of urgent help. So it was about quickly finding out where, what the options are, how much they are and how he can get one quickly. So that's one example. And then another example would be speaking to residents that are maybe perhaps um, able to get food, but but can't actually leave the house. So then we're working with Oxford together to match them with volunteers. And volunteers will either be able to pick up some shopping for them or pick up a prescription or sometimes just be there at the end of the phone for a chat if needs be. Um, and then hopefully that relationship goes forward and then they, they kind of every week would be able to pick up their shopping or pick up their prescription. So um, it's sort of building relationships within the community as well. If you need help with food or essential items in the city, just search Oxford Locality Response Hubs online. Also doing a similar thing is Richard Hurst. Now, he's a grounds maintenance supervisor for Oxford Direct Services, which works for the city council. And instead of keeping our local parks in check, he is checking on people's welfare and told Emma how massively rewarding it is. When it first started, I was assigned to one of the hubs, um, East Oxford Hub, and firstly I started to coordinate food deliveries and um, medication pickups from pharmacies and stuff. Um, but since then I've gone a little bit forward. Now I do welfare checks within the community. So I get given a list of people that haven't answered their phones or we can't get in contact with. Um, and I actually go and do door-to-door -door knocking to check on their welfare, um, offer them um, food, medication and any support that they need, really. That's, that's what I'm doing currently. How many people do you think, roughly, are you checking on per day? Um, it varies from day to day. I think the most I've done in a day was probably 18. And, and I've done well over 100 since I've been doing it. So I'm probably in like 110, 120 plus people now. Are there any stories that you can share with us? We deal with people that um, the majority of the time don't require any um, further assistance, but some um, are in a little bit of financial difficulty. Um, I've had to take someone's electricity card, top it up, take it back to them. Obviously, they were over the moon. Little things like that, picking up prescriptions or just going door to door. And actually, because some of them are like self-isolation, they don't see anybody from since it started and it's like you get a really good feeling about you know speaking to somebody and their faces light up um, we've had a few cases where people have been really difficult to get hold of so we've had to go that little bit further with next of kin or neighbors knock on neighbors see if they've if they've heard anything from them so yeah it varies a great deal but it's quite rewarding and um, it's it's good that we can offer this to people the vulnerable people within our city do you have a message to anyone who might be listening to this? Just, if, if, you, if even if you're lonely or if you need any assistance, if you need any food parcels, if you need any medication picked up, or if you just want something as simple as a little five-minute chat at, you, at your gate from your door, anything, it's, it, we're, we're here. You know, just reach out to us and uh, we, we've come to see you. Just hopefully make your day a bit brighter. Now, another local lady who is helping out in a very different way is Sue Chantry. 
She's the occupational health manager at Williams F1 in Grove. Well, usually she is, but now she is back on the wards at the JR and she's helping to care for people with coronavirus. So the NHS put a call out for registrants who um, weren't working in the NHS to return and support the NHS staff on the wards. The clinical work for Williams had quietened down. The race team weren't travelling anymore and staff were beginning to be furloughed. So it just made a natural progression for me to be able to use my clinical skills in the context of supporting my NHS colleagues. Um, I did it in a heartbeat, didn't, uh, didn't take a second to think about that. And the team have fully supported me in that decision um, and uh, that's been a real bonus in terms of being able to support my work within the NHS. And how is it different and is it sort of more challenging than maybe you anticipated when you signed up for it? Absolutely. I've not worked in acute medicine for over 15 years. Um, The technology has moved on phenomenally since I was last working here Um, my nursing skills have gone back to my roots and that never leaves you but I I think uh, working um, with generally fit well and healthy um, clients within the context of my Formula One work um, to then work on a on the acute wards looking after some very critically ill patients was quite a a transition that took me a while to to get used to but I've been sort of well supported through that journey. And I know you talk briefly about sort of some highs and some lows at the moment with the work that you're doing. And I wondered if there are any sort of any of those that you might be able to share with us. I think it's really positive to see the recovery of patients. And um, I think one of the examples that I shared was um, just on the discharge of uh, of an elderly patient and just seeing his son waiting for him at the uh, entrance of the hospital um, as they wheeled him through. Um, He was well enough to be discharged home was just an absolute delight and a real privilege to to be um, involved in that. Um, the lows, some of it has been the challenges in working in the, the full um, medical equipment um, and actually looking after some very critically ill patients um, and actually, you know, the, the, the distress that some people have had in the context of not being able to see their family or, or you know, speak to their family has been particularly challenging. Um, but obviously, we're all here to support patients through those experiences Do you feel like there is sort of light at the end of the tunnel or are you not wanting to look to what the future looks like at the moment? I'd like to think that there's a a positive um, focus. Um, The wards I'm currently working on at the moment, it's not quite as intense, um, but I'll just, you know, be here available as the rapid response team deem that that's a, a requirement to support the permanent staff within the trust. Um, I've got the flexibility of my work with Williams. We are beginning to think about staff returning slowly and obviously the ideal for our team is to get back racing. So um, I'm always available to support them in terms of those strategic focuses that they're going to have to consider in the uh, current climate of kind of social distancing. Hundreds of people in Oxfordshire are also doing their bit to help tackle the virus by getting involved in local trials to try and find drugs and vaccines. One of those people is Tim Claydon from Oxford, who was actually recruited for two of those trials whilst he was being treated in hospital. He was very unwell with COVID-19. Here he is so open and honest with our reporter Emma about what it is like to have and survive the virus. I have a deep appreciation for the staff. The ward I was on, there was uh, six or seven of us. Um, 
the rest of them, sad to say, were all senile dementias, a lot of them shouting for help, or dead husbands and wives. Very sad, very disturbing. And the staff with patients of saints looking after them. It was very noisy, uh, so quite upsetting. Um, and, of course, you're, you know, I was trying to deal with my own health condition, which was not great, and uh, after I was admitted, uh, went downhill for a bit. So the whole thing was terribly worrying, and, of course, you're isolated. All I had was my phone. My wife also had COVID-19. She wasn't tested, but she had everything there. Um, and, of course, I didn't want to worry her. She didn't want to worry me. So we had these rather stilted WhatsApp exchanges where you're trying not to tell the other one the whole story because you don't want to worry them. Um, but equally, you don't want to mislead. Uh, it's very strange, disassociated time. The, the news and everything, just one long, long monologue of how awful the disease was. Well, I was living it, as it were. So you're sitting in a, you're lying in a ward, you can't breathe properly, people come and see you every two hours, more more drugs intravenous, more tests, more measurements, uh, consultant once a day. Um, yeah, it's a disorientating, uh, difficult time and uh, very worrying and um, just living pretty much from day to day. That's how it was. And actually, on my 60th birthday, the consultant, who I'd got to know relatively well, gave me the best birthday present I've ever had in my life, when she said, we have ground for optimism. And what symptoms did you actually have, Tim? Everybody seems to have different symptoms. So it's hard to say what the overlap was. Uh, in the week leading up to my uh, uh, going into hospital, I had massively high fever, um, Fevers like I've never had before, uh, soaking the bed with sweat, uh, utter fatigue. Uh, if I wasn't sweating terribly, um, I was teeth-chatteringly cold, literally teeth-chattering. So I had to stand in a shower to try and keep warm and then totter back to bed. I had a little bit of a cough, but not as savage as people had been talking about. Um and terribly, terribly weak. Completely lost my sense of taste and smell. Uh, in eight days, I lost a stone. Just couldn't eat, didn't want to eat. Um, then the cough started. But before I really got ill, there was a brief period of about 36 hours when I actually started feeling a little bit better. But unfortunately, things went downhill very, very fast. And then the difficulties breathing kicked in. And that was really scary because it wasn't like a normal chest infection that I've had in the past. Um, it was a sore throat and chest, but not a, a red raw sore throat as one might get with a cough. It was a deep muscular, really quite sickening pain. So if I tried to breathe in deeply, it really, really hurt in serious pain hurt inside top of my chest and in my throat and of course you can't breathe so there's this terror that you you can't breathe and it feels like you're underwater or there's a pillow over your face or oh it's it's terrible and sleep is impossible and it, it's very very scary and it was just getting worse and worse 
How did you feel then when you were told that there's reason to be optimistic? Oh, it was absolutely brilliant. I'd be two days before um, at the 10 o'clock consultation, um, the leader of the ICU team, and he's number two, appeared by my bed in full uh, battle dress uh, to introduce themselves, to say that they were monitoring my position. They were sorry that, to see that I was getting worse and that they wanted to meet me before uh, I came into the unit, if I came into the unit, because they said it was would be less distressing and disorientating for me. Uh, I have to admit, I didn't realize I was getting that ill, but seeing those two there by the bed was um, was really quite, uh, quite a shock. Um, so two days later, to be told we have grounds for optimism was really, really good. And the, um, the night nurse in particular, a Spanish woman, she and I got on a little bit, as, as you do in, in hospital. I mean, it's very brief, but she came in to see me the day I was, I was let out. And um, we both triumphed because the two of us had battled it at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, a really dark time. And what was it like then when you could actually go home and, and see your wife? Almost indescribable. I, um, uh, I'd been through quite a lot by then. And on the Sunday, they said, well, if you're OK and we think you'll be OK, uh, we'll discharge you at two o'clock. They had to get various drugs for me. And uh, I said, well, look, you know, my wife's pretty ill and she'd have to come and pick me up. Are you sure? And I said, yeah, 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 about then. Anyway, it finally ended up at half past two. Um, I was wheeled out in a wheelchair through an absolutely deserted A&E reception area. Um, very bizarre. The M&S shop standing completely shut. And um, I was let out and stood in the sun with the wind I can't tell you. It was it was quite amazing. And then my wife turned up in the car. Um, we were almost speechless. There was it was almost too powerful, too deep for words. It was um, even hugging had to be careful because you know still worried about giving each other stuff. It was a very powerful moment and um, deep, deep thankfulness to come out of it and be in one piece and uh, the physical symptoms are st some of them are still there but obviously getting less but emotionally it's been a, a roller coaster um horrible for my wife having to deal with all of this remotely it's going to stay with us as a an episode in our lives we've been together now 42 years but it's going to stay together in in our minds as one of the more serious episodes in our lives. It was a very, very, felt like a very, very close shave. Right, something a little different now, as Blenheim Palace confirmed this week that it will reopen its park and gardens to visitors as soon as it can. So there's no date just yet, but there are going to be conditions, obviously because of social distancing. So I asked Ops Director Heather Carter to tell us more about that and how they've been managing the fact that parts of the sites are still open to the public. 
Most of the time, 90% of the time, it's been absolutely fine. People will be coming out, through, spread out through the day and walking and, and enjoying the, you know, the, the views of parks, been looking amazing. But on the odd weekend when it's been really, really sunny, and I think people are just so pleased to get out and they're there with their families and, you know, people are starting to linger a bit and sit around. And, and we did have to call for help just to ask people to move on. Um, and I think and people generally were very happy to move on. It was just they got caught in the moment of being in a lovely place. Um, it's mostly local people. We don't have any car parking around here. So, you know, we're not asking or saying that the park is open, and it's absolutely not. It's just for people who live locally to take their daily exercise. And we hope we hope we'll get the park open again soon. But at the moment, the park is, is definitely closed. And I'm interested to know what you think that might look like when you can reopen. I know you can't give a date yet, but I assume there is planning in place for how you might work that, including obviously limiting numbers. Well, we've worked up several scenarios of what it might look like to open, but um, you're absolutely right. In, in order to keep our, our, our guests in a safe environment and our staff safe as well, we, we're going to have to limit numbers and control the perimeters. We think we'll only open with the park and gardens, not the courtyards, not the shops, not the cafes to start with. Um, we'll have temporary toilets, temporary catering facilities. We'll make sure there's, the routes around the gardens are clearly marked. You know, we'll really help people to stay safe. And you've already actually had to cancel or postpone some big events like Nocturne. Are you thinking you are going to be able to carry on with some of the, the big events you usually do in the summer? That's a big question. So, um, yes, we're so disappointed to have to have cancelled some of the events, well, a lot of the events. And, of course, our event partners are devastated, but the calendar is looking really strong for next year. So everybody's rebooking for next year, which is good news. Um, we, we we hope we've still got some... Um, events penciled into the diary for september we have at the triathlon uh, the half marathon um at salon privé car event and also we've got our big christmas so you know we're, we're all thinking about how we can make these events um operate safely um obviously if we don't think we can as the guidelines change then we will have to change or postpone but we're just keeping that a bit fluid at the moment because they're all in september we are looking in the summer for um we have a cinema event lunar cinema which is is already um in the calendar and we're hoping that we can easily manage that with social distancing, sitting out in a, in a garden. We make sure people are spaced out, no queuing, and make sure that you know they were all served safely. And the other thing that we're looking at is driving cinema because actually that's a perfect way. You sit in your own car, you're in your own space, you don't need to interact with anybody. Everything everything's done online before you arrive, and so that would be really exciting. So nothing definite on that, but we're we're looking to see if we can find a partner to work with. We have no income coming in, and this is, this is our, our coming up to our peak time of the year. We, and it, uh, Easter would have been a, a fantastic start to the season with such lovely weather, but we were shut. Um, so, so for us, it's a yeah, devastating loss of income. Um, that's why we're tightened, tightened our belts as, as close as we could. Um, and, you know, and, and for the local community as well, the businesses that are suffering because they've got, you know, maybe staying in the hotels, maybe going to the restaurants. Um, so, so, yeah, it's been devastating all around. We will do everything we can as, as when we open to, to help these businesses to come back and work with us again and obviously to try and bring people into the, to the neighbourhood when we can. Now, the message this week, of course, has been to go back to work if you can't work from home. And that is likely to have an impact on public transport, even though Boris Johnson has asked us to try and avoid public transport if we can. Locally, we're being warned there may be some disruption to bus services as more workers head back to their jobs 
Here is Phil Southall, MD for the Oxford Bus Company, chatting to Emma about how they are preparing for that. We have agreed a funding package with the government to start ramping up our services, but we don't anticipate we can do this for two or maybe three weeks. During that time, we will be introducing additional social distancing measures uh, on our vehicles. Uh, we will be um, basically giving advice out to stay two metres apart, um, and there will be some guiding principles for passengers, such as uh, when you get on, you know, make sure you try and sit next to the window, and maybe leave the seat uh, or the row in front of you and behind you free, and really just to use your common sense to space yourself out um, around the vehicle. So, so basically, customers will be receiving advice to to uh, get, the, their, uh, get the most out of their journey, really. How easy do you think those measures will be able to implement and ensure that people are adhering to them? Well, exercising social distancing on public transport is a challenge. We've all heard the government advice about uh, face coverings um, to try and provide that additional um, safety barrier. Um, it is very difficult. Um, you know, it would be foolish of me to say otherwise, but you know, we are doing our very best to give um, advice to, to customers to space themselves out and stay two metres away from other customers. I think there may be some disruption as people come to work in that people might not be able to get on the first bus that comes along. We'll be giving our drivers guidance on um, advising when buses are full uh, and we would ask customers to, to bear with us on, on that. We will try and accommodate as many passengers as we can. Drivers will use their discretion though if, if customers present themselves in family groups or people from their own household and they will be allowed to board and sit together uh, on the vehicle if they do that. Um, and we will be putting uh, indicators on the front of the bus to say the bus is full uh, if no more passengers can get on. So, so we will try and do as much as possible um, to make it clear to customers whether they can or can't get on on our vehicles. How will people be able to find out about your advice for the social distancing? Yeah, well, we plan to advise people um, through our website um, in advance um, if they wish to seek um, information. We will be uh, putting signage on our vehicles in due course over the next couple of weeks to indicate what the maximum capacity of that vehicle will be. Uh, we're anticipating that, that the buses will run uh, about a quarter of their normal capacity. So on, on a double-decker, um, rather than carrying around 75 passengers, we might only be able to carry perhaps 20 passengers. Um, but obviously that number varies depending on, on, on which, what type of customer presents themselves. So if they're, they're single uh, and everybody's single, then, then clearly you can carry fewer passengers than if people present themselves in couples or in family groups. So, so the actual amount of passengers we can carry per bus might vary slightly. So drivers will be advised what the guidance capacity is on the vehicle. Um, and obviously they can then use their discretion about whether they go above that or not, depending on the makeup um, of the passengers that present themselves on that individual trip. Finally, I wanted to share the story of a live music venue in Abingdon, which is massively struggling right now. It's the North Court. It doesn't have any money coming in because of the coronavirus, and it's had to cancel all of its gigs, of course. Its promoter, Mark Cunningham, told me what impact that's had on the North Court and the industry. Young up-and-coming bands uh, with, with their own material really do struggle to find gigs. They've got to start somewhere, and if they don't get... Uh, some kind of uh, reasonable leg up on the ladder or some experience, then how can they actually move on to the next, uh, to the next levels? To the, you know, and it's places like like the North Court and other similar sized you know venues where where people do learn their trade, where people start to to, to begin that journey. And I'm just really pleased that we've been able to help a few bands along the road. And actually, when you put it like that, it makes me think live music venues being in trouble at the moment because of what's going on is so much bigger 
than just the venues themselves having to potentially close because it's so many potential future careers, I suppose, that could have been launched as well. Well, it is. I mean, everybody started playing in, uh, well, I say everybody, almost everybody. Certainly if you go backwards, you look at people like, you know, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, they, they, all these guys, they, they, these, these, these super uh, huge, ginormous bands, they all started playing tiny little, little, little places and, you know, you, 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 you learn your trade. You know, you, you learn what to do and what not to do. Um, you learn to, to, to work with, uh, with engineers. You learn to work with, with, with PAs. Um, and, and you learn some of the dirty part of the job as well, the nitty-gritty of, 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 you know, pounds, shillings and pence and, and how to deal with people. It's an apprenticeship like anything else. And it is very difficult at the moment because we, like, like everybody else, have had, their, had the rug pulled out from underneath us. I mean, uh, as far as um, income is concerned, it, it just stopped dead the day that, uh, that pubs and clubs shut. You've got bands playing in the living room. <laughs> and it's giving them an opportunity, I suppose, to start writing some new, new material, but they haven't got any audience to play in front of. That's true. Which, and is, a, which is a sad thing. It yeah. is. And we actually had some figures through as well. Apparently around 82% of live music venues in the UK have said they're at risk of closing before the end of this month. Talk to me about Northcourt. Are you in that percentage? We're struggling. I, I've got some of my own personal funds that, 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 that I have used to pay some of the outstanding invoices. But there, there comes a point where, you know, I can't continue to stick my hand in my own pocket. I don't do this to, to, to make any money. It is a not-for-profit not for organisation. I've been a, a musician myself. I, I guess I still am a musician myself. And I, I know how difficult it is to get gigs. And... The answer is yes. We we we're, we're struggling and we're in trouble and potentially um, perhaps not uh, not this month, but but certainly by the time we get to high summer, things are going to look pretty dire. For people that are listening to this and maybe live music fans or or for any reason want to kind of help you guys, talk a bit about the the campaign and what people can do to help. Well, there's a national campaign called um, Save Our Venues that. Um, has been uh, set up by the Small Venues Trust. I think the number is 556 venues across the UK that are all really teetering on the brink at the moment. And you can choose to donate to the venue itself uh, a small sum that, that, you know, I understand that people right the way across the board are struggling out there, but if there's any money that you can donate, uh, then it goes to things like the overheads uh, and all the invoices that, that, that are still coming in. Um, I try to be optimistic about the whole thing, but I really, I really don't think we're going to see anything moving really in this, this kind of arena until perhaps September or so, um, at, at the earliest. I, I know there was some talk about easing some restrictions and... If you if you look around you and look at what's actually happening, is it realistic to actually open up pubs or, or, or clubs just now? It, it, it's not for people's health, and that's got to come first. It, it, it's just it's just a mess. It's a terrible thing. Yeah. I don't think there's a family that, that hasn't been affected. I mean, my my family has been. We lost uh, we lost my father-in-law. You know, we're not alone. Whilst it's important to people, music is important to, to people's soul and to the to the mental well-being. But in the big scheme of things, is it you know if we if we start opening up too soon, uh, the consequences would really be uh, worse than than not doing so. So I, I, I you know 
again, I, I, I can't see anything really until, until we look at sort of heading towards autumn, I would think. I suspect Mark might not be far off there, but fingers crossed venues can get open a little sooner just so they can survive this pandemic. And if you'd like to help, just search Save the North Court on crowdfunder.co.uk. That is it from the Jack News team for now. I'm off for a bit of unlimited, socially distanced outdoor exercise. See you soon.